0: Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson.
1: Hi, Amber. Great to be back.
0: And Haley Kanoff.
2: Hey, Amber. Hey,
0: Alex. Well, uh, Supreme Court has given us a ton to chew on this week. Indeed. um, Wrapping up the term, we're recording this on Thursday. They released their last opinions this morning. There is so much from the last few weeks that I think we actually need to tell people about the format of what we're doing today.
1: Yeah. You know, starting with this week's show on Pro Se, as the listeners know, we kind of got caught unawares when the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade dropped on Friday. We weren't able to sort of have a fulsome discussion about that opinion, though our friends at the term did an awesome job with that. And I would definitely encourage you to listen to that if you haven't. But we are going all dobs all the time today. We are going to walk you through some of the early responses from the business community and the legal community to that decision. There's already been some litigation related to the sort of state level imposition of new abortion laws, all kinds of things to pick through. So we are going to get you caught up to speed on what you need to know about the abortion landscape, and then we've got other plans, Amber, which I think you can fill the uh, the people in on on the rest of the Supreme Court term now that it is, now that the book is closed on that.
0: Yeah, I'm actually very excited about what our next show after this one's gonna be. It's also gonna come out this same week, so listen to these back-to-back, you Supreme Court heads out there. Yeah. Um, But the, the next show is actually gonna be a super group. We're gonna join up with our sister show, The Term. We're gonna break down the overarching stuff from this really historic Supreme Court term. I can't think of a busier one in by any stretch in recent memory. So we have a lot to unpack, and we're going to join up together and do all of that.
2: I don't want to brag, but a lot of the other podcasts I listen to are kind of churning out these just like throwaway episodes because it's the <laughs> summer and... Not us. Look at us go.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, the Supreme Court has given us plenty of fodder since we're a legal news podcast. So, lots to go over, but just wanted the listeners out there to know we're going to do both of those things. And I think we should dive right into all the fallout from Dobbs.
2: Yeah. So, firstly, I want to walk us through what law firms and companies in general are doing in the wake of Rose undoing. And I also want to note that Amber is going to dive more in depth into the employer side of things. Mm -hmm. So, Stay tuned for that, but just right off the bat, we're already seeing a growing list of employers that have said they'll cover the costs of -of out-of-state reproductive care for employees in any states that restrict abortions. A big group of law firms is also staffing an abortion hotline, and pretty much everyone is grappling with a whole host of new ethical questions and legal risks.
0: Yeah, right off the bat, one of the things that started happening pretty much immediately was companies coming out and also law firms coming out and saying they will continue to pay for abortions and for out-of-state abortions in instances where that needs to be the plan. Tell us more about who's doing that and what kind of stuff they're covering.
2: It's a growing list, but thus far we have dozens of big names implementing these policies or reiterating them. On the corporate side, we have Disney, we have Meta, formerly known as Facebook, of course, JP Morgan, Citigroup, Zillow, and Dick Sporting Goods um, are all among those who are tweaking their policies or uh, tweaking their employee health plans. And as far as firms go, there's also Morgan Lewis, Morrison Forster, Ropes and Gray, and Prosgauer, just to name a few.
1: So what exactly... I mean, I assume different companies are taking different steps. But can you give us a general sense on exactly what they are offering when they say we are assisting employees with reproductive care? Um, I know that there's probably changes to both corporate policies and also health plans. Can you give us a general sense of what that's looking like?
2: Sure. So specifically, some companies are offering travel expense reimbursements for employees... Zillow has updated its health plan to reimburse employees up to $7,500 every time significant travel is necessary to access health care. Dick's Sporting Goods will provide up to $4,000 in travel expense reimbursements. And Dick's is also offering to pay for someone to travel along with the patient uh, to support them. So those funds can be used for that as well. It's also worth noting that some companies already had travel benefits that covered medical situations requiring travel, like for treatment of rare diseases or more specialized care, and those included abortion already. Disney is one of those companies. After Dobbs, the company reiterated its commitment to continuing to ensure its employees have access to reproductive care no matter where they live. Uber also said its insurance plan already covers those expenses And Lyft, speaking of rideshare, Lyft already provides abortion access as part of its medical plan. But on top of that, it said it'll be expanding its legal defense commitment to states with restrictions.
1: It makes sense that some companies would already have had policies like that, because even in states... You know, where it was legal to get an abortion, you know, through attrition and, and regulation, you know, there, it was logistically hard to get them. There was only like a handful of abortion clinics and like, you know, of vast states if you live in a place that's not easy to get to one. So that does make sense. But it is interesting to see that either those policies reaffirmed or expanded in certain contexts. Um, what are we seeing on the law firm side? You did rattle off some names at the top. I mean, are they sort of tracking in the same direction as most of these corporations?
2: They are. It's pretty similar. Uh, A few examples here. Morrison Forster said it'll reimburse employees seeking reproductive care up to $5,000. Ropes and Gray employees will also get a travel allowance. And Proskauer will offer paid time off plus cover transportation and lodging costs for employees or dependents enrolled in the firm's health plan.
0: You also said a bunch of firms have taken another step, which is signing on to help out with an abortion hotline. What's going on there?
2: Yeah, a whole slew of big law folks are helping out with the New York hotline, which was put together by the state's attorney general. The attorneys are providing legal guidance to patients seeking abortions and also to healthcare providers who want to offer them. Basically, anyone who's who's after that information Two dozen firms have already agreed to help, including and Gump, Gibson Dunn, Milbank. We also have Paul Weiss is co-leading the hotline with the Center for Reproductive Rights.
0: Yeah, a lot of this stuff has come about pretty quickly. But what about the other companies that are maybe, you know, we're seeing how this goes, caught a little more flat-footed? What's the movement there?
2: I mean, a lot of companies just don't know what to do. And they are largely turning to their lawyers, of course. So lawyers in the healthcare industry in particular are inundated with Mm -hmm. questions right now. Uh, Those are questions about ethical duties to patients, as well as the legal risks. And the questions are coming from a long list of parties involved in the healthcare system. Hospitals, pharmacies, telemedicine platforms, investors, the list goes on and on. The regulatory environment in a pre-Dobbs world was already pretty complicated, as Alex mentioned a minute ago. And now it's just even more of a mess, honestly. Uh, In particular, some states are floating travel limits that would punish individuals who try to seek abortions elsewhere. That raises questions about their authority to do that. And then there are also questions about surveillance to enforce that. It's honestly all way too much for us to dive into today in depth, but I'm sure we will be covering all of this in the coming months.
0: I feel like this whole episode is going to be an overview of the myriad questions that were opened by this ruling. So we've only gotten the barest of answers so far. I think, Alex, you're going to take us through some of the litigation that's already sprung up.
1: Yeah, I mean I just by nature of the, you know, proximity of this decision and what we know, this is going to be more of a questions raised than question answered sort of exercise we're doing here. But I wanted to talk about what we can say definitively about some of these state level abortion restrictions that are already being challenged in court. There's some early stage litigation to talk about even though the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade has been on the books for less than a week. Um, I thought it would be useful to kind of catch us all up on what's happened so far because it's there's a couple of different litigation paths to discuss here. So I think we should uh, walk through them.
0: One of the things we talked about when we had the leak draft of the opinion was how a bunch of states had trigger laws that would take effect immediately or maybe close to immediately if Roe was in fact overturned as it was. So did that all happen or are there sort of other steps that had to go through to get those laws on the books?
1: Yeah, so we'll start with there is a total of 13 states that have what we now call trigger laws that were basically waiting for the Dobbs decision to strike down Roe and return abortion you know authority to state governments. But in certain cases there was just more like legal machinations to walk through. Tennessee's trigger law um which bars abortions after 6 weeks of gestation Went into effect this week after the Sixth Circuit basically threw out this injunction that had put the law on hold starting in 2020. um, The appeals court was pretty brief in signing this. It was basically like an exercise in how these trigger laws work. It basically wrote that in light of the Dobbs ruling, this injunction holds no water. So it's gone and the restrictions are in effect. Um, Saw a similar dynamic play out in South Carolina federal judge there lifted an injunction on the state's uh, abortion law which is also also bans the procedure after 6 weeks um just days after the dobbs ruling was handed down so that's just that's just a couple of examples of those restrictions took place but there was sort of lingering litigation that had to be be tied up in order for that to happen
2: so there's also a lot of legal action On the other side of things, I know here in California, people are very much uh, scrambling to protect abortion. And then in some other states, we're seeing the trigger laws put on hold. Could you walk us through some of that?
1: Yeah, so that's coming fast and furious. I'm trying to keep up as best I can. There's still challenges and TROs um, flying in from various states. But I think it's important to remember, I've said it a couple times, but All the Dobbs decision says is that states can now enforce abortion laws in ways that they couldn't before when the court recognized a constitutional right to have an abortion. Now, but that doesn't mean that when states pass laws restricting abortion access, that they're immune to legal challenges. It just means that you don't get specific um, constitutional protections anymore. And we are already seeing some challenges to those laws play out. So... I wanted to start with the the first couple dominoes to fall here were trigger laws in Utah and Louisiana um, were put on hold, meaning that abortions are still legal in those states, even though trigger laws were on the books. Judges have basically put temporary holds on them while challenges work their way through the courts. Um, The cases are a little bit distinct from another. In Louisiana, the state is facing a bunch of suits from a handful of abortion providers, who claim that the trigger laws are unconstitutionally vague because they basically fail to state exactly what conduct and procedures are prohibited or what the penalties are for those found to break these laws. They just think it's like a little bit too vague to comply with. Um, They also say it's not clear whether and to what extent there are exceptions in the law for healthcare professionals that have to perform life-saving work on a pregnant person. So there's just they're just saying that there are some unanswered questions here that basically make the law unwieldy. In Utah, Planned Parenthood is arguing that the state's trigger law violates various elements of the Utah Constitution, which um, at least held sway with the judge at this early stage. The judge wrote, quote, on the merits, plaintiffs have raised serious constitutional issues, which are fair grounds for litigation. And the judge is talking about the Utah Constitution there. There's also a really interesting case going down in Texas, which has a trigger law that is set to take effect 30 days after Dobbs was handed down. So we got about three more weeks now. Now, ahead of that deadline, the Texas Attorney General put out an advisory noting that state prosecutors could use the 1925 abortion rules that were actually struck down in row, like the actual disputed laws in row to bring criminal charges against people who provide abortions. Now, a bunch of providers sued. They basically said that Roe took those laws off the books and that they were never properly reinserted into the Texas code. Um, And a Texas judge has now, just like I said before, um, has temporarily blocked um, the state from enforcing its ban. And the state has appealed. Uh, Just today, Thursday, hours before we started recording, Judges in Florida and Kentucky also blocked those states' abortion laws from taking effect amid various legal fights. Again, the exact arguments differ a bit, but there's a lot of talk about whether these are protected by individual state constitutions, which are often a little bit more specific about privacy rights and things like that than the federal constitution is. Um, But all these cases that I've just mentioned are at the basically the, the temporary restraining order stage, which are usually it last a couple of weeks. And we will keep you updated as the plaintiffs in these cases, push for longer term injunctions and also dive uh, more deeply into the merits. So there will be plenty to keep our eyes on.
0: That's a lot for us to keep track of, Alex, but uh, the tone of what you're explaining to us makes me feel like even more is on the horizon, so any sort of tidbits people should keep their eyes on.
1: Yeah, we've also seen lawsuits filed uh, by abortion clinics to va- the various state courts in Mississippi, Idaho, West Virginia, and Ohio. Those uh, are will course their way through the courts and also may draw early temporary restraining orders, possibly injunctions later. It's also a challenge from Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, um, similar to the Texas thing about like whether these laws that were vacated by Roe. Are actually in effect, like whether they snap back into effect. The Wisconsin governor is asking a state court to say that uh, the state's 1849 abortion ban has been usurped by various restrictions that have been passed since. The state's newer laws allow for exceptions in instances like sexual assault, while the 1849 ban does not. So they're saying if you are allowing the state to now enforce the 150 year old version of the law, you um, open gaps in it that we specifically have tried to fill in the intervening decades. So these are going to keep coming um, and we will uh, do our best to keep you updated with them.
0: Obviously, we've already had a lot to talk about with the fallout from the Dobbs ruling, and there's going to be so much impact on women's lives. But one area I also wanted to focus on today was how employers and companies are reacting because they are so often intertwined with healthcare in America. So I wanted to run down some of the key issues from healthcare benefits to union negotiations to just general liability that employers who want to continue supporting workers who opt to have abortions may face.
1: It's pretty obvious to say that there are countless ramifications here but I I was interested and we have a bunch of stories on this that we'll shout out here in a little bit about the way this immediately swings into a workplace issue in a variety of different ways. So what do we what do we need to know first Amber?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the very first thing is just initial reaction like things mm-hmm. employers are going to have to sort out Immediately, particularly around activism on this issue, because no matter what side um, you were on, what you wanted to have happen with this ruling, strong emotions are coming out of this for employers and they're bringing that to the workplace. So employment law experts told Law 360 that smart employers will look at things like their existing social media policies, their dress codes to basically make sure they're very clear on how to handle employees who you know, for instance, want to post about how they feel about the ruling on social media, or they want to come to work wearing either a pro-choice or a pro-life button, let's say. So they basically just need to tidy up their houses about what their policies are and stick to those policies. There is not a First Amendment right to free speech that extends into a private workplace. So that's why this can get a little messy and you need some policies around this. But Title VII does protect against discrimination based on religion And the National Labor Relations Act safeguards employees' ability to talk about terms and conditions of employment. You can see how an abortion benefit could be one of those terms and conditions. So it's pretty obvious those laws could come into play when workers are vocal about abortion rights. So employees just need to know that there is that tension between those things and to plan accordingly. Abortion is also so deeply entwined with religion in America that Employers also need to tread pretty carefully around protected speech that employees may have about this issue and just ensure that those policies are applied equally across the board.
2: I have to imagine there are some issues with weeding through all these different laws now that are in all these different states. We kind of talked about this uh, earlier in the episode but can you yeah. walk us through how employers are going to be navigating this? I mean, it seems like a mess.
0: They're going to hate it. There's nothing. You, if you ever talk to a GC, the first thing they'll tell you is not that the law, which way it goes, doesn't matter, but that they just want clarity, that they want clear one way or the other. And we're entering into a period where it will not be that. There's going to be a, just a patchwork of laws depending on the states. So nationwide employers are going to have to keep abreast of all sorts of moving parts here and try to apply those fairly to their employees. And that's going to be really hard. It's going to be hard just to keep track of it all. Then the application becomes difficult. You can see how this kind of spins out of control in a way. There's also questions about some things that I hadn't really thought about until our reporters dug into it. Um, Confusing issues like what if states begin to regulate employers who are already themselves heavily regulated by the state? Let's say a company needs a license to operate in the state. Are states going to try to put together laws that restrict those types of employers from being able to obtain or hold their license if they provide abortion benefits to their workers? That could be um, a big issue and, and a bit confusing. I think it would end up back in the courts again.
1: Oof. One of the ways that this has... Manifested in the early days is obviously the analysis of benefits that employers offer and, you know, about the questions that you face if you offer if your benefits plan covers abortion services, reproductive services, whatever you want to say um, for your employees. What is the sort of early stage calculus on that point?
0: Yeah, this is a big question for employers. They basically have to take a look at what kind of health plan they offer because it does impact the degree to which state laws restricting abortion apply. And I'm not going to get too deep into this, but here's just kind of the top line things they're going to have to sort through with their lawyers. In the case of a self-funded plan where the employer assumes financial risk for providing care to its workers... Federal preemption provisions under ERISA, that's the federal benefits law, mm-hmm. they apply and they block the application of state insurance laws that might limit abortion access. That's not the case if you're a what's called a fully insured plan. That's where employees buy coverage through a commercial insurer that's subject to state regulation. So even in the case of those self-funded plans there, there is another wrinkle that some of the laws from states are actually criminalizing abortion And so ERISA preemption would not shield against criminal liability. So you can see how just the wording of what these state laws says, whether it's like actually criminalized or not, can have an impact here. And any of these plans could potentially run afoul of these various patchwork of state laws we're talking about. And companies are basically going to have to sit down with their good lawyers and come up with a strategy that mitigates the risk if they want to keep offering abortion coverage in these variety of states.
2: So we can't, uh, in this moment in time, talk about um, labor issues without talking about unions. Mm -hmm. Is this something unions are going to be pushing for? Will employers have to take that into account in bargaining?
0: Yeah, it seems like it's going to come up. I mean, this probably won't be uniform. I mean, it's going to depend on the makeup of the members of the union and what they want to push for as they negotiate. And the state, of course. And the state, of course. But... The ability to access abortions does tend to have strong emotions with people, and that may make it into bargaining, especially around things like travel assistance that you talked about earlier, Haley, that some companies are offering. Um, not just the benefit itself, but like, are you fulsomely supporting that benefit to access that healthcare? So at least a handful of unions have already pursued contract language to enshrine abortion access rights and um, others plan to in the wake of this decision. One that I wanted to point out that's already happened the Writers Guild of America East recently negotiated abortion access provisions for workers at Vox Media. That CBA guarantees healthcare coverage for abortion services, also provides workers a $1,500 stipend to travel for abortions if they're not available within 100 miles of their home. So that kind of stuff may become more prevalent. Unions and those negotiating for these kind of provisions told Law 360 that. The travel stipend and also potentially a guarantee of some time off for travel for abortion access are actually key to protect the right of um, a woman's right to choose. Because if an agreement just says the company will pay for the actual procedure, it's kind of meaningless in states where a worker can't actually access the provider. So I think we're going to see an argument um, or at least negotiations during CBAs that tackle this not just about the benefit itself, but about support for that benefit.
1: And I mean, I think that leads to a very obvious question. Haley already laid out that many companies are, and to some extent or another, committing to cover travel expenses, um, help employees get to places where they can get an abortion if they want to. What sort of liability could they face? I mean, I would imagine that's uh, top of mind.
0: Yeah, this is where it's going to get Pretty thorny, and there are not clear answers, but we're going to see court cases undoubtedly here. Yeah, The issue of whether ERISA preempts some of the self-funded plans from state restrictions still needs to be worked out, so that's probably going to go to court. Employers may also face some legal risk from states imposing civil penalties on any person or entity that aids or abets an abortion procedure. We've seen this in states like Oklahoma and Texas that have had those types of proposals. The law could theoretically be used to target employers that provide workers reimbursement for travel to a jurisdiction where the procedure is legal. Utah makes it a crime punishable by 15 years in prison to perform an abortion. So if a company is doing business in Utah and offers insurance to employers, to employees that covers abortion, or if they offer to pay for transportation fees, that kind of stuff, is that company aiding and abetting that crime? And it's just unclear. Like we we don't know, so we're probably going to have some lawsuits there. It's also worth noting it's not clear how certain laws intersect. Yeah, there's laws that bar discrimination against women and pregnant workers. So like things like Title VII that we often talk about, and the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, both federal laws. How will those interplay with state level abortion bans, particularly those that criminalize the procedure? You may see, you know, just one example. Is that employers could have policies in place that, let's say, allow for termination if an employee is convicted of a crime? Well, is it going to be discriminatory under yeah. Title VII to fire someone whose crime was seeking an abortion? It's, it gets pretty complicated pretty fast. And I think a lot of this is going to have to go back through the legal system to get some more clarity. We've covered a lot of ground here talking about the Dobbs fallout. Couldn't have done it without you guys. Thanks a lot, Alex.
1: Thank you, Amber.
0: And also, Haley. Thank you.
1: And uh, as we said at the top, do keep an eye on uh, your Pro Se feed uh, after you've uh, digested our exhaustive Dobbs Fallout breakdown. I thought we did a pretty decent job at that. Um, keep your eyes peeled for the... Uh, I don't know. What are you calling this, Amber? The Pro Se Term Supergroup?
0: Yeah, Supergroup's good.
1: The Monsters of Folk of Legal <laughs> News Podcasting. Ooh, that's Patons. fantastic. Uh, yes, you guys are going to be Amber and Haley, you are jumping on with Jimmy and Natalie over the term to put a button on this momentous term uh, of the Supreme Court. Uh, so everybody, uh, keep your eyes peeled for that.
0: Yeah, really looking forward to that one. And also, just want to give a big shout out, as we always do, to the people that make our show possible: our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. And a bunch of contributing reporters this week, including Amanda Ottaway, Kelly Medrich, Graydon Campbell, Sue Reisinger, Celeste Bott, Adam Lidgett, Hannah Alborazi, Eric Heisig, Jeff Overly, Abby Wargo, and Jack Karp. And I'm sure we're forgetting some people. Our whole newsroom worked so hard on Dobbs coverage, so thanks to everybody. Also, music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review wherever you're listening. That helps other people find us. And join us again tomorrow for more Supreme Court coverage. You can also check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again tomorrow.